Good morning. We want to welcome those that are watching online. We're glad you can. Would you take God's word and turn to Matthew chapter 27 through 30 this morning? Our context happens to be the words of Jesus in terms of him preaching what's often been called the Sermon on the Mount. And we have to understand his intent. Several weeks ago, we realized while the accusations were that Jesus was bringing in something beyond the Old Testament, something new, something that's really kind of progressed down through history, he says, no. He goes, that's not my deal. My deal is to fulfill or make complete the laws of God. My desire is I want to tell you what God's intentions were from day one. Rather than what you have done to his word. You know, the choir sang a beautiful song this morning. And one of the phrases that resonated with me was, All I can do is fall on my knees and cry holy. Did you notice how many of the songs this morning talked about us kneeling? Kneeling is a sign of humility. And when I think about the topic this morning that Christ addresses... I hear those words. All I can do is fall on my knees and cry holy. It's where we start. It's where we have to start. If we're going to navigate these issues as followers of Jesus. The topic that we're addressed this morning is one that the church often has avoided. It's a topic of lust. Lust by definition is a misplaced or misaligned desire. The context that Christ gets into has to do with sexual lust. That's just one of many misplaced desires. When we take them out of the context of Christ, when we take them out of desiring God because that's what we are designed for, that's when it becomes lust. So we can lust for many things. But he's talking about lusting in terms of a sexual lust. And the church often has avoided this. And in doing so, we've allowed the conversation to be out there. And we know what they're saying out there. It's not a place with biblical worldview. And when you take the salt and light out of the culture, we will progressively become more vulgar, vulgar, and we will degenerate in terms of lifestyle and conversation and thoughts. Do I need to say more about that? Meanwhile, in the church, we have people who quietly struggle because we do not want to speak to the core issues. Lust is a gospel issue. Why? Because it's a sin issue. Men are struggling. Women are struggling. Teens are struggling. And instead of hope, we often shame them into secrecy. But here's my intent this morning. So please, no matter what I say, whether I say it beautifully or poorly, here's my intent. I want the words that I speak out of God's word to be encouragement and hope. And no matter where you find yourself, you are not beyond the reach of Christ. And that's Christ's intent when he brings this subject up. It's about forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation. Now, before we get into the actual texts, I want to bring up three basic principles that we have to understand in terms of when Jesus says, 
Well, here's what you've heard, but I say. Here's the first. The spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law. The law by the religious leaders were reduced to actual activity. They made them accomplishable by human effort alone and not by divine intervention. So what we see Christ doing is saying, okay, yeah, you're, you're right about that, but let's talk about the spirit of the law. He talks about intent. And so when he talks about adultery, we quickly realize that he brings in the aspect that emotional affairs are just as wrong as physical affairs. But I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, well, we never did anything. Christ says that doesn't matter. You're guilty. You need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit to navigate out of this inappropriate, lustful desire. Second, we have to understand that the laws of God are both positive and negative. There are don'ts, and we're really good at those at the church, but there's also do's. Sex outside of marriage is on the don't list. Sex inside marriage, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of family is on the do list. And we often emphasize so often as Christians, we, what they call throughout the baby with the bathwater. Three, and the third's implied, God alone is qualified to judge hearts. How many times in our culture, how many times in our relationships, how many times when we speak about people that we've never met, do we judge their intents? We judge their hearts rather than their actions. There's a discipline called ad hominem. It's spelled just like that. It's a Latin word. But here's the strategy of ad hominem. The strategy is that in a conversation, when you debate issues, you attack the character or motivation rather than dealing with the issue. That's ad hominem. Now, last week, Dr. Kime talked about anger and murder and how you can have character assassination, which is equally wrong in God's eyes, and never physically kill somebody. Now, in our culture, we are really good at this. Just listen to the political rhetoric. We move from judgment of ideas to condemnation of the person rather quickly, don't we? And both sides does this. Think about the intolerance of tolerance. How we mock people, we mock their hearts, we mock who they are instead of dealing with the substantive issue at hand. Let me give an example. Many of you know that I'm a PIAA ref. I ref basketball. And there's always a variety of comments coming from the audience and coaches and players about our calls that we make. I remember a game I was doing. It was an inner city team playing a country team. And the inner city coach was writing us substantially about our calls. That's a lousy call. How could you call that? I can't believe you saw that. That's fine. That's an issue. He thought we had a lousy call. We thought we had the right call. At one point in the third quarter, I run by and he goes, you guys are racist or we'd win. I stopped. <laughs> I looked at him and I says, listen, 
I don't know you, you don't know me. Your team isn't playing well. You can call me lousy in terms of calls all day you want, but to call me a racist is to judge my heart, and you shouldn't do that. And he apologized quickly. See the difference? But see how in our culture, we always move to the ad hominem. We are taught not to deal with issues and sit down in a civil way. No, we're just going to call them a name. We're going to label them. We're going to accuse them. So the context is this. We are called to live differently. By God, through Christ... In the power of spirit, they are all necessary to live out our calling. That's the context. Now, last week, Dr. Keim addressed the sixth command of the ten commandments we talk about. This week, we move into the seventh. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, let's pick up in Matthew 5, and let's see how Jesus addresses this. He says, you have heard it was said... You shall not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Takes it right out of Exodus 20. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this should not have surprised the Pharisees. Because in the Tenth Commandment, we hear these words. This is just partial. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You see, the heart of God is much wider and deeper than just the prohibition of physical acts. And just like you can commit murder with words and you violate the sanctity of life, you can commit adultery with your mind and your heart and violate the sanctity of marriage and family. And Jesus later on in the sermon says, listen, when you give your heart away to another, no one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one He will despise the one and love the other. So he says, when you give your heart away to another, you will end up despising one of them. And that's true in marriage, and that's true in all aspects of life. So Jesus is seeking to unmask self-righteous externalism, just things that we do. He's going to the heart of the matter. Sin is in our hearts, and that's where we have to deal with it at the cross and with his spirit. Then he goes on and says this, and this is kind of shocking in his day. It's shocking even in our day. If your right eye, in verse 29, causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I mean, get the vivid illustration here. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, he's not talking about works of salvation. He's just saying, listen, it matters what you put before your eyes. You know, the eye is often called the window to the soul or the window to the heart. It matters what you place there and what you dwell on and what you look at. It also matters what you do. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And of course, while hell is a real place in a transcendent time we also know that we can be in a living hell here and what he's saying is that if you put certain things before your eyes you will end up in that hell 
If you practice certain things, you will end up in that hell. There are consequences to what we choose to see, and there's consequences to what we choose to do. So, control your eyes, he says. You control your eyes, you control your hearts. Many of you know the story of Job, and Job went through one of the most horrific Life that we could ever imagine. From wealth to poverty, from losing everyone in his family, to being questioned by the community. Job, what did you do to deserve this? See, they had in their minds that long as I follow God, life will be good in my terms. The idea of suffering for Jesus just doesn't exist. And, and I don't know why, because when we think about the crucifixion of Christ, and he says that you will be persecuted like they persecuted me. We just kind of write this off. But in Job, we see him struggling as well, saying, okay, is there anything in my life that I've done that would have offended or been sinned against God? And here's what he says at one point in Job 31. In verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So he says, you know what, God? I I didn't do that thing that a lot of men do. In verse 7, if my step has turned aside, he's talking about the hands, what we do from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes. If any spot has stuck in my hands, you see what's inside of us ends up coming out in terms of what we do. And then in verse 9, he says, if my heart has been enticed towards a woman, And I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door. And of course he says, you know, I didn't do this, God. I'm really looking at myself. I'm checking up. And if I have, please tell me. If I'm living in self-deception, please tell me. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, Peter's talking about false teachers. He's talking about people inside the church. And here's how he describes them in verse 14. He says, they have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin they entice unsteady souls they have hearts trained in greed so you see the whole sexual nature but you also see the greedy nature in terms of money and he says accursed children so what we place before our our eyes matters now there's obvious applications isn't there and we can check some things off that we say we don't do Pornography comes into that category. Pornography should be offensive. We can take other categories because they talk about soft and hard pornography. I don't like those categories. I think they're all equally as destructive. See, soft sounds like it's not as bad as hard. You've heard me talk before about Fifty Shades of Grey. That's pornography designed for women. Romantic novels that change God's intentions for married for marriage that is a form of pornography it's a form of misplaced desire and Jesus says you got to be careful how you look blind yourself to those things that when they enter your heart they invite disaster into your marriage and family now we could add to those categories some things that don't look so obvious You know, Scripture talks about women dressing modestly. Now, I'm going to say something that I personally believe. You may disagree with me. 
But I think women know the difference and so do men. What is modest and what's not. I'm amazed though how grown adults dress up their children who are innocent, who do not understand and they dress them up in seductive ways. I'm amazed at men and women how they excuse certain behaviors. I had a pastor friend, actually one I was coaching. Um, Young couple. His wife was a bikini model for car shows. She used her body to sell cars. And he was proud of this. It's kind of like, hey guys, you can look but not touch. And I get to take her home at night. And everything was great until she left him for another quote-unquote model. That devastated the marriage. It devastated the family. Man, I just didn't get it. I just did not get it. We live in a sexualized culture. It's rather obvious, isn't it? Just a few weeks ago during the inauguration of our president, there was a march held by women that was not fit to take children due to. It was not a family affair. Due to the vulgarity of speeches, due to some of the clothing that women wore, due to some of the clothing that women did not wear, even though it was cold and damp and rainy, some decided to march with nothing on. See, I say to myself, as a man, I'm going to speak as a man, there are certain things I just do not need to see. And I do not need to dishonor my wife or my kids or my grandkids. And if we're so privileged someday, still be here and my great grandkids. See, something I learned a long time ago. It's when I was in San Francisco and we lived right in the middle of a very um, sexualized culture in terms of same-sex relationships. And I got to meet a lot of people who were in the white slave district. And what I realized was that they were someone's daughter. They were somebody's child. And if I don't want my child to do that, then why should I put before my eyes somebody else's child in those lustful ways? Now see, that's the don't. The do is, God gave us imagination. He gave us our minds. He gave us our eyes to see beautiful things. That is a gift of God, and we're called to use that for his glory. Let's talk about hands and what we do. John 17 Verses 15 through 19, we hear these words. Prayer of Jesus is going before his crucifixion. We had the privilege of hearing our, our son preach just before this. Uh, went to the early service, and he works with youth, and every once in a while they ask him to speak. And he talked about the crucifixion, and he went down through the description of the crucifixion. And I sat there and said to myself, we Christians do not understand Intellectually, yes. In our hearts, no. We have not put the cross of Christ before our eyes. Yes, we do things like communion. And yes, we do things like read about it. But we haven't put it before our eyes and really allowed it to penetrate our hearts. When you think about the suffering that Christ went through. And then you think about the things that divide us. We should weep in repentance. 
Think about what we get upset about. We should weep in repentance. See, discipline is practicing the right things. John 17, here's what Jesus prays. He says, I I do not ask that you take them out of this world. All the sin, all the things that cause us to weep, all the painful reality of people caught in sin. He says, do not take them out of the world. Why? Because we are salt and light. But that you keep them from the evil one. You keep their eyes and you keep their hands pure. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, we're called to live differently. Sanctify them. Our calling is to sanctify our spouses in marriage, to sanctify our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids. Our call is to sanctify our friends and our family, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You are sent with a purpose. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So we have to practice the right things, which means we as well don't go to places that will cause us to sin. Now, we all know the illustration of if you wrestle with alcohol, why go sit in a bar every night? It's just not wise. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? From, you, from whom you have, from God, it's a gift from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now here's how this works. You realize that we are diverse. We have diverse experiences. We have diverse pasts. And based upon our past, then we have to put certain walls up that we will not do because it will lead us down this path. And just because I put these walls up for myself doesn't mean that somebody else has to. Too often in the church, we kind of make this universal. Well, every Christian should not. How many were here when Ricky Bolden was here? Kind of raise your hand. Okay. You know, great communicator. We had a great weekend. Taught us about, you know what? We need to get out of the boat. We need to risk for Jesus. Friday night, where we just gathered with the men, we talked about this very issue. About what we put before our eyes and what we do in terms of pornography and sexual sin. I remember he said this at one point. He says, man, he says, you have to understand. Before I was a Christian... He goes, in my neighborhood, in my college, because I was a celebrity, I was a star. He said, I had access to women, to drugs, to anything I wanted. And he goes, and I partook of that generously. He was, after becoming a Christian and after getting married, he says, I realized that I had to put boundaries up. So here's what he said. He's man, he says, I will not go to a beach. Because for me, because the amount of sexual sin I engaged in in college and in high school, because I was a star. He goes, for me to go to a beach and watch women walk around in bikinis, he goes, I can't handle that. He goes, I cannot handle that. So he says, I don't go to the beach. 
That's a boundary I put up due to my past, due to my present with my wife and my kids, because I want to honor them. So you see, when you realize your past and present, discipline is putting into place boundaries. You say, I will not go here. I will not do this because it tempts me beyond anything I would want to be tempted by. I hope that makes sense. Now, here's two principles you have to understand in the context of this whole, you've heard and I've said. Do we understand that Jesus is saying this? Eternity is more important than time. Transcendent beings, that's our eternal nature, that's forever in heaven, that's where we go after we leave this earth, is more important than this world and this time and space. He tells us that we are not designed for sin and death. That's why he made a way out of sin and death. This world is temporary, and it's better to go through this life blind and handless than not to spend eternity with Jesus. Now again, he's not speaking about work salvation. He is speaking about those things that keep us from Christ. You know how we blame other people for our lack of belief? Jesus says, no. You're responsible. Yes, I know the world's like this, but you're responsible. You and you alone put things before your eyes. Nobody else does. You and you alone choose to do things. I don't care what other Christians have done. I don't care what other Christians have said they've done. I don't care what Christians are doing and seeing. He goes, you're responsible. Here's the second. Purity and holiness is more important than culture. Now, I realize that purity is not a popular concept. In our culture, they say it's old, archaic, it's out of touch with reality. The truth is, our culture thinks they know more about God than God knows about us. And so we violate his design, and we pay the consequences, and we blame someone else for it. Genesis 3, did God really say, we go out and we do certain things, we put it before our eyes, the fruit, we actually take our hands, and we do something with that fruit, and then when God shows up, oh, you know what, God, you made Eve, and she... And he says, well, you made the serpent and he. We do that so often. Let me try to wrap this up with some principles that we can go by this morning. Here's the first. We as a church need to create a safe environment for people to come and have a conversation. And I hope you realize by church, I I mean people. Okay, that's us. And churches in our homes, it's at our workplaces, it's in our communities. Yes, it's here. And I think this needs to be a safe place. And by safe, I don't mean we don't confront and we don't deal with sin. By safe, I mean they can come and they can share and we welcome forgiveness and reconciliation. But here's our context. We live in a culture of condemnation. We live in a culture that has lost the art of civil conversation. And there are things that should not divide us, but they do. And the truth is, we have carried this culture over into the church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 to 13 says this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So you hear what's happening? The world gets worse. In the church, we will be persecuted for trying to live a pure and godly and holy life. That's true with pornography. It's true with same-sex struggles. It's how we handle cultural aspects of adultery. And I'm going to give you a list of resources. I would hand these books out, but they're on my Kindle, so it's kind of hard to hand an electronic out. But let me give you some resources. I think I have them. Do I have them listed? There they are. Uh, fascinating book, Same-Sex Marriage, A Thoughtful Design to God's Design for Marriage by McDowell and Stone Street. Now, here's what I like about this book. It starts out talking about God's design for marriage. See, too often in our arguments and issues, we start at the wrong place. And the truth is, in the Christian church, we have misaligned God's intent with our desires for marriage. In other words, that got out of whack. And so they confront the reality that in the church, we have not done well with God's design for marriage. But then we all get upset about same-sex marriages. So we always have to start here. Second book, 10 Lies Men Believe About Porn. Guy who was addicted to pornography, a Christian who was addicted to pornography, goes down through the list of things that he just, you know what? Here's the rationalization of what I did for many, many years. Women, if you haven't heard this, know this, the fastest growing part of pornography in America is porn for women. They're becoming addicted at a, at a rate that is unseen. There's a blog called Beggar's Daughter. Jessica Harris, who's around 30 years old, who was addicted to pornography, writes about this very issue. And she writes in a very compassionate way. But I was at a conference with Mike, and um, she begged pastors on stage saying, listen, don't turn this into just a men's issue. She goes, there are women out there struggling, and the shame is very, very large. Filters for parents and kids and other kinds of things. There's a filter called Covenant Eyes that really is helpful in these kinds of things. You can Google that and get all the information. If not, Mike has some information on it as well. But think about social media and technology today. We live in a different world, don't we? And we have to not throw it all out. But we have to learn how to navigate it responsibly on all levels. And if we don't talk about it here inside the church, we know what they're talking about out there. And the conversation inside the church has to be decent and in order. See, it's cool today to be vulgar. That's why we have all this vulgarity going on in public. Our biblical witness. You know, how we navigate life. It's why we have small groups. And you know, small groups just aren't physical small groups. The beauty of the internet is that you can actually form a group with people you know all around the world. And I have to tell you, in case you didn't know this, people from Zimbabwe and people from India, they look at politics very differently than we do. (laughs) And there's some wisdom in that conversation. There's some wisdom in the whole conversation about a sexually saturated culture that's happening to Western society. And I know some of you have shared your stories about the destructive side of this issue. 
But you have to share the hope side of the issue as well. That's why I said this needs to be a safe place where there's healing and hope. And the issue is so much larger than just stop. There's a lot of things that we need to start doing. And we cannot isolate and Christianize and condemn. It isn't going away. As long as there is a world full of people, there will be a world full of sin. The dilemma in America is we can afford it to levels that other cultures can't. But we are called to be the hope of the world. And our conversation must always lead to accountability. Secondly, first is we need to create a safe environment for people to come and have a conversation. Number two, keep Christ in everything. I'm amazed how in church that we often offer therapeutic models instead of Christ. And we come alongside of them, not with Christ, but with other theories about how they will find healing. Now, some of them can be beneficial, but we always have to keep the main thing the main thing. I'm amazed in our churches how we offer political models instead of Christ. Politics will come and go. Kings will come and go. Queens will come and go. But Christ remains forever. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's high and exalted. God is sitting on his throne. And if we get anything out of the Old Testament is there are more bad kings than good ones. There's times we offer cultural models instead of Christ. Reactive models instead of Christ. Throw this out. Cling to our version of religion. Let me illustrate. New technology comes along. Rather than find ways to keep balance, rather than find ways to put Christ into this mix, we just kind of throw it out. Or we embrace it. Now, I'm going to talk to my generation. I'm going to talk about Facebook. You realize that once you embrace Facebook, all the youth went somewhere else. (laughs) You need to know that. They're like, my parents, my grandparents on Facebook? Ooh. But here's my advice for my generation on Facebook. Knock it off. Just stop it. Things that you put on Facebook, why do you do this? It doesn't honor Christ. It doesn't honor anything. Don't even know really what you're saying because it's all linear. It's out of context. People that don't know you read that, and they can read it any way they want. It's just not worth it. It's not worth the time to type it out. Pray instead. It does say pray without ceasing. It doesn't say Facebook without ceasing. I guess they ask the question, does your post glorify God? You know, the advantage of social media is that we really can talk to people um, different than ourselves, different culturally, different in all aspects. And that can be a beautiful conversation if we learn how to have civil conversations. Or we just shut off people and do we accuse them and we call them character assassinations because they disagree with us. Here's my third. Let's keep our marriages and our homes strong. We have to be intentional about that. We have to think long term about that. It's just not short term. 
We have to evaluate parenting strategies. We can look at the why and purpose of marriage. And I will tell you, we're going to get into this next week. Most of the Christian church has lost the real biblical meaning of marriage. And it's why we're in such a mess. One of the best resources I know is Tim Keller. He wrote a book. He's a pastor in New York City. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. Probably one of the best biblical concepts of marriage that I've read. And I'll be using some of his concepts next week. But one of the key reasons why we do not do marriage well is because we lack accurate biblical understanding of the why of marriage. In other words, we've put things before our eyes and we've done things with our hands that are outside the calling of Christ because we have not kept the main thing the main thing. We kept ourselves the main thing. You have heard it said, but I say, who are you going to believe? I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing a song in closing. That's just simply titled, I give you my heart. We set things before our eyes. We allow Christ just not to hear all these biblical, theological definitions of everything, but we allow him to saturate inside of us and make it our own. I want to pray for you guys before we do. Father God, thank you for your grace. We thank you that even though we don't understand, you decided to do something about this sin and death thing. And you came, you walked among us, you died an incredibly horrible death. And while we say all those things, I pray that somehow you make us and cause us to bow our knees, to come before you in humility, to worship you and you alone, to keep the main thing the main thing. And may your Holy Spirit point things out to us saying, you know, don't put that before your eyes. Stop that. Start doing this. And whenever we don't know what to do, well, we pray because we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Help us, Lord, to keep our marriages and our homes strong. That has been one of your core ideologies from the very beginning of the world when you created men and women and united them together in marriage. There are reasons why strong marriages and strong families are productive to societies. And when we get this wrong, we should not be surprised at really the disintegration of anything that we call holy. Teach us what it means to be salt and light in this matter. May we not have a heart of condemnation, but may we have a heart of love that walks with people as the Holy Spirit walks with them. And may we help them see Christ. To you alone we pray these things. In your name, who alone is worthy. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together as we worship.